Well, several weeks ago we began a new topical series called The Marks of a Christ-Honoring Church, and I shared with you that I've based much of the series off of Mark Dever's book called The Nine Marks of a Healthy Church. So several weeks ago we looked at the first mark, which was a commitment to expositional preaching. That as members here of Royal York, you should demand and expect from your pastors that we expound God's word to you, that we unfold God's word to you verse by verse, passage by passage, book by book. And then we also looked at the second mark, which was the mark of biblical theology. So it's, it's not just how we preach, but it's what we preach. That we're called to be committed to primarily coming together as the people of God to study who God is, to learn of who God is and his ways. We don't primarily gather to get tips on how to be better with our finances, though all those things are important. But we have a commitment to study who God is, to know who he is, so that that would impact how we live in light of who he is. And then last week we looked at the third mark, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus, that God in his kindness towards sinners sent forth his son into the world to live the life that we could not live and to die for our sins upon the cross, to face the righteous judgment of God on our behalf and that those who repent and believe can have their sins forgiven. This morning... We're looking at the fourth mark, and the fourth mark is this, a commitment to a biblical understanding of conversion, a biblical understanding of conversion. So let me pray for us as we look at this. Father, help us now to ponder one of the greatest mysteries, yet most glorious truths in the Bible. That you are a God who actually causes people to go from death to life. That you save. That you transform people's lives. You completely redirect their destinies. So help us, Lord. Give us ears to hear, hearts to understand your word. That we might worship you and honor you rightly and live for you in a manner worthy of you. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. When I was six years old, I remember being at church, and I, I can't remember, it was a special event, and uh, they brought in this puppeteer dude, and um, he had a puppet show for the kids. And through his presentation with the puppets, he presented the gospel, and then at the end of the presentation of the gospel, he invited us kids to accept Jesus into our hearts. He, he asked us that if we wanted to receive Jesus into our hearts, we just needed to raise our hand. And then he led us in what many call or many know as the sinner's prayer. Now, I was six years old. I don't remember anything in that message. I didn't like puppets. So I clearly was not listening. But I raised my hand and I prayed the sinner's prayer to receive Jesus into my heart. And so I was then taken into another room where a person in the church sat me down and 
basically said to me that because I had raised my hand and because I had prayed the sinner's prayer, I was now a born-again Christian. That God had saved me and that now I could have assurance of salvation that no matter what happens, I was a child of God. Now what was wrong with that? Well, a lot. I wasn't born again. God hadn't saved me at the age of six. I had no assurance of salvation, and yet this wonderful godly lady, who I think was misguided, spoke to me in really the authority of a pope and told me that I was a Christian, that I was born again. See, what she did, not realizing, and what that speaker did was they reduced my salvation to merely a decision on my part. You see, as well-intentioned as those individuals were, and I actually know them and I love them dearly, underlying all of that good intention was what I would consider very bad theology, a wrong understanding of what biblical conversion is. And I have a deep concern that there are many people like me who at the age of six were told that they were saved simply because they raised their hand or walked an aisle or prayed a prayer, that they had been born again, and in reality, they're not. And I think there are many churches filled with people like that. I know of a situation, a a dear friend of mine who seemed to, in every sense, Follow Jesus, profess faith, pray to prayer, was even baptized. And he walked away from the Lord completely. He still is no longer living for the Lord. And yet, his mother is convinced that because he prayed a prayer when he was a child, he is automatically going to heaven. He is born again, even though there is no sign anymore of a desire to live for Jesus. Last week, we looked at the good news of Jesus Christ. The good news that Christ died for our sins in our place so that we who were once enemies of God can have our sins forgiven and be restored to right relationship to God. To go from enemies of God to sons and daughters of God. But the question for this morning is, how does what Jesus did on the cross historically and objectively become a reality in our lives? How does what Jesus accomplished on the cross, our salvation, actually get applied to our lives? How how does one go from an unbeliever to a believer, from a non-follower of Jesus to a follower of Jesus? How does what Jesus accomplished for sinners become mine? And a proper understanding of biblical conversion will give us answers to those questions. I ended last week's sermon with, you must repent, turn from your sin, and turn to God, and you must believe, trust in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation. And this is what we would describe in the New Testament and in the Old Testament as biblical conversion. No one can be be a Christian unless they truly repent of their sins and turn to Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord. 
Conversion is a change. It's a change of loyalties. It's a change of loves, a change of desires, a change of allegiances. I'm no longer living for sin and self, but for Christ. But is that all it is? Is it merely a decision by a human to follow Jesus and turn from sin? Is it merely a matter of the human will? Is it merely a matter of a change of mind? Or is there something deeper at work? So my goal is to show you from the scriptures that conversion, when someone repents and believes, is no less than a miraculous working of God upon the sinner's heart by which God removes their heart of rebellion and gives them a new heart that treasures and is devoted to Jesus Christ. That's my goal this morning. And I hope to demonstrate that from the scriptures. So last week we looked at the good news of Jesus, but a part of understanding that good news was also understanding the bad news. That we are sinners who have rebelled against God and his ways. We don't just do bad things, we are bad. We become corrupt, sinful creatures who need to be saved, who need to be delivered. And the Bible uses very strong imagery to capture our natures as sinful human beings. For example, the Bible says that we are slaves to sin. In John chapter 8, Jesus is having a conversation with the Jewish people and they say to him, we are not slaves, we are children of Abraham. And Jesus responds to them by saying this, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Everyone who gives their life over to sin is bound by their sin. They're enslaved by it. The Bible also speaks about how we are spiritually blind, spiritually dead, and we're going to look at that in just a minute. See, there was a time where I thought salvation was primarily, when someone got converted, was primarily this idea that you had a sick person on a bed And all they needed was a doctor to give them the proper medication. And and if they received it, they would get better. But that's not the picture of salvation in the New Testament nor in the Old Testament. The picture of salvation is that you are a dead corpse. And you don't need a doctor. You need a miracle. We don't just need medical intervention. We need miraculous intervention. We need the power that Jesus uses when he raises Lazarus from the dead. Lazarus come forth and a dead man came out of the grave. And this is why the scriptures also affirm that we're unable in and of ourselves to respond to God's salvation. That though we're called to repent and believe, we're unable and unwilling to do so because of our sinful fallen state. This is why Jesus in John 6, 44 says, No one, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. 
No one. There is not one person on earth who can come to Jesus unless the Father draws him to Jesus. In 1 Corinthians 2.14, Paul is speaking about the natural person. That is the person without the Spirit of God. And this is what he says. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are folly to him. He doesn't accept them. And then he also says this. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So the natural person, the person without the Spirit of God, doesn't accept the things of God because they're folly to him. And he's unable to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. That word able is a word of ability. He's unable. He can't do it. He can't understand Romans 8, 7 to 8, Paul writes about the sinful mind, and he says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. It doesn't submit to it, and it cannot submit to it. Those who are, who are in the flesh cannot please God. You know, when you read the Gospels, it's really interesting Jesus is saying all these deep truths and he's doing all these miraculous things and and his disciples are with him and over and over again, they don't understand. He does a miracle like the the loaves and the fish and then he begins to warn them about the leaven of the Pharisees and, and, and they're completely confused and they're, they're actually worried in the boat, we don't have enough food and Jesus is like, have you not, did you not just see what I did? And what does Jesus say over and over again? Are your hearts still hard? The hardness of the disciples' hearts kept them from understanding what Jesus was saying and also what he was doing. They saw his miracles, yet they didn't fully get it. And that's why in Luke 24, when Jesus rises from the dead, he shows up into this room with the disciples and he begins to speak to them. And this is what he says. Luke 24, 44 to 45, then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Jesus opened their minds after his resurrection so that they could understand the scriptures. They were unable. They did not have the ability to grasp all the truth that Jesus intended them to grasp. But we have to be careful in what the Bible means as inability. You see, we can end up thinking that God is calling people to repent and believe, and they're willing to do so, but they're just unable to do so. That's not the picture the Bible gives us. Our inability to respond in repentance and faith is a result of our unwillingness to respond. It's a result of our absolute love and devotion for sin. We are not mere victims of sin. We are lovers of sin, enslaved to our love. In John 3, 19 to 20, 
Jesus says this, this this captures this idea. It's it's not that we're wanting to come to God, but we can't. It's no, we don't want to come to God, and therefore we can't. John 3, 19 and 20, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. We are not victims of the darkness. We are lovers of the darkness. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. Jonathan Edwards uses this great illustration to capture this truth. That if you were to have a man in a chair and you were to chain his hands down to the chair and you called him to stand up, and he wanted to stand up, but he was unable because he's chained to the chair, that would be immoral for God to do. But that's not the picture of the Bible. The picture of the Bible is that man is in his chair. There are no chains on his hands. And you say, stand up, and he refuses. He is so in love with that chair that he will never get out of the chair. He's bound to the chair because of his love. That's the picture of the sinful human being. We love our sin so much that we are bound to it. We are enslaved to it. We are like Smeagol, the Lord of the Rings, who, who, who this character cannot do anything but crave the ring of power. He's controlled by it. He's consumed by it. He's enslaved to it. And this is why nothing short of a miracle of God can anyone be converted and saved. So what is biblical conversion? Well, there's four passages that I want us to look at to help us understand what biblical conversion is. In your bulletin there, I've listed off a ton of different passages. Those are some of we've already we've already covered. But I want us to specifically look at four. And so I, I don't want you to try to keep up when I reference other passages. But the four passages we're going to look at, I want you to turn to when we come to it, okay? Each passage uses a different image to capture what conversion is according to the scriptures. And the first is this. Biblical conversion is described as a new birth, a new birth, or regeneration. So look at John chapter 3, 1 to 8. If you have the Blue Church Bible, it's page 983 in that Bible. John chapter 3, 1 to 8. This is biblical conversion as a new birth, or as regeneration. This is the passage Bev read for us. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Now that's important. This man is a religious leader in Israel. He's supposed to know the Old Testament inside and out. This man, verse 2, came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So Nicodemus, it's interesting, you can follow him through the the whole Gospel of John. He's an interesting character, but it's very clear Nicodemus 
through this statement is kind of wondering who Jesus is. We know, we know you come from God and that you, you teach the things of God and that God is with you. God, you could never do the things you, you did, do if God wasn't with you. And he's almost saying, who are you really? And it's interesting, he never asks a question, and yet Jesus answers him, but doesn't even address what Nicodemus brings up. Look at verse 3. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So, a few observations here. When Jesus says, unless one is born again, that word born again can also be translated born from above. Born again, born above, a second birth, one that is heavenly, so to speak. The idea here is begetting, a father begetting a child, or a mother giving birth to her child. The the real idea here is that of regeneration. Now, Jesus makes clear that this born again, this new birth, is absolutely necessary for what? To see the kingdom of God. Without this new birth, the human person cannot see the kingdom of God. That's why Jesus is on the earth, he's doing these miracles, and there are hundreds of people who don't know who he is. The kingdom of God has broken in in the person of Christ. And they don't see it. They're blind to it. The Pharisees see his miracles. It does nothing to them except angers them. They can't see the kingdom of God. So here we have very clearly, more than anything else, that someone has to be born again or else they cannot see God's kingdom. Okay, Verse 4. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Now you see from this question, Nicodemus doesn't understand a word that Jesus is saying. He doesn't get it. What what do you mean? Are you saying that an older man must be born again through his mother? And so Jesus in verse 5 clarifies a little bit further. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born, so there it is, there's that born again again, right? Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So we need to ask, what does it mean that he, to be born of water and the Spirit? But, but first I want us to look at the second part. What is it that he can't do if he's not born of the water and spirit? He cannot enter the kingdom of God. So the first part, if you're not born from above, you cannot see it. You can't see it. Secondly, if you're not born from above, you can't enter it. You can't enter the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is blocked to those who aren't born from above. They are unable to do it. So what does Jesus then mean by this being born of water and the Spirit? Well, he's going right into the Old Testament and taking very clear truths that were expounded in the Old Testament that Israel didn't understand. For example, look down at verse 9. 
Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? And Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? In other words, Nicodemus, you're a student of the Old Testament. You should know what born of the water and the spirit means. But he doesn't. He doesn't. He can't grasp it. So what does born of the water and the spirit mean? There's lots of examples in the Old Testament, but specifically in Ezekiel 36, 25 to 27, this is what God says to Israel, and it's connection to the new covenant. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So when Jesus says you must be born of water and the spirit, he's speaking here about the fulfillment of the new covenant in which God will pour out his spirit upon his people and he will breathe life into them. He will cleanse them by water, by the washing of water and renew and regenerate them by the Holy Spirit. Why? And cause you to walk in my statutes. This is what Jesus is referring to here. The gift of the Holy Spirit, where the Holy Spirit will come and descend upon a human being and will enter into them and wash them and cleanse them and restore them and transform them. Now, who causes the new birth? Who causes the being born from from above? Do we cause the new birth? Well, the, the imagery alone should tell us, no, we don't. Babies, when they're conceived and when they're born, are what? Passive participants. Mom and dad do all the work, and especially the mom. And we know this, even in 1 Peter 1.3, Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, According to his great mercy, that's an important line, you're going to see it again. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. It was God who caused us to be born again. Why? According to his mercy. Having nothing to do with us but his mercy alone. He breathed life into us. He regenerated us. He caused us to be born from above. God begets his children. God renews and regenerates his children. That's exactly what Ezekiel 36 states. I will sprinkle clean water on you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. The new birth is God's work by the spirit by which he cleanses and regenerates us to walk in his ways. That's biblical conversion. It's the work of the spirit of God upon the heart of a sinful man by which he causes that man to see the kingdom of God and to enter into the kingdom of God. And if you're a Christian, 
If you've repented and truly believed upon Jesus Christ, it's because you were born by the Spirit of God. Now turn with me to Titus. Titus chapter 3. So go right. You have 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, 1st and 2nd Timothy, and then Titus. It's just before the book of Hebrews. Titus chapter 3. It's page 11 in the church Bible. Sorry, page 1100 in the church Bible. Titus chapter 3. Look at verses 3 to 7. This is Paul writing to young Titus. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. So here Paul's clearly referring to our pre-conversion, to their pre-conversion, right? This is who they were in their sinful state. Foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to their passions and pleasures. They were passing their days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Then look at verse 4. But, that word is such an important word in the New Testament. But, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. How did it appear? In the person of Jesus. The goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared. The Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 5, He saved us. He saved us. Christ saved us. And Paul tells us why. He tells us, for one, why He didn't save us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness. It had nothing to do with your own goodness. It had nothing to do with my own goodness. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but what? But according to His own mercy. 1 Peter 1.3 According to His mercy, He caused us to be born again. According to His own mercy, He saved us. How did He do it, though? By the washing... There it is, the water of regeneration, the new birth, and renewal of the Holy Spirit. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. That's how God saves people. That word regeneration is used one other time in the New Testament. It's in Matthew chapter 19. Jesus is speaking to his disciples and he says this. Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, in the new world, literally translated, in the regeneration, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. In the regeneration, in the restoration of the cosmos, that's what Jesus is referring to. When creation is restored, when creation, in a sense, goes through the new birth. In other words, the Bible clearly conveys this idea that there is a regeneration coming for all of the cosmos and creation. But before that happens, there is individual regeneration. There is individual new birth that prepares the people of God for that great day. 
We are the first fruits of the new creation. That's why Paul can write in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is what? A new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And it's interesting that those very words are the same words that the Apostle John uses in Revelation 21, 1-5 when referring to the new creation. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth, first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. That's how the Bible describes individual conversion that precedes the great day of the transformation of all of creation. This is what biblical conversion is, a work of the Spirit of God by which he renews, regenerates, and makes new a human being. Secondly, biblical conversion is also described as a spiritual resurrection. A spiritual resurrection. Look at Ephesians 2. So go back left. You got 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians. Ephesians 2, 1 to 5. I know many of us are familiar with this text. And Paul says this, and you were dead. Dead. Not sick. You were dead. What does dead mean? Dead means dead. Like you were a corpse. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. We were dead, according to the Apostle Paul. Dead in our sins and trespasses. Spiritually unaware. Completely dead. And this is precisely what we see in Ezekiel 37, which I read for us a few weeks ago, where Ezekiel gets this vision of the state of Israel. And this is what we see. And the hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. And he led me around among them. And behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley. And behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. 
And I will lay sinews upon you and will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you. And you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a sound and behold, a rattling and the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked and behold, there were sinews on them and flesh had come upon them and skin had covered them. But there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. And then he said to me, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel and you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will put my spirit within you and you shall live. I have no doubt that this passage is what informs Paul when he writes Ephesians 2. You and I were like those dry bones. We were dead in our sins. But God, but God, because of his abounding mercy and his infinite love, he made us alive. He breathed life into us. That's what we read in verse 4. But God being rich in mercy. See that? That's almost the same line that you saw in the other two passages. According to his mercy. According to his mercy. But God being rich in mercy because of his great love for us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. It was God who made us alive. Biblical conversion is nothing short of a miracle by which a spiritually dead person is made alive by God. What do dead people do? Absolutely nothing. They can't hear, they can't understand, they can't speak, they can't respond. Dead people need a miracle, and that miracle is God. See, when I preach, I'm calling people to repent and believe in Jesus. But I also realize that I'm preaching to spiritually dead corpses. And apart from God's mercy and the Spirit of God taking His Word and breathing life, no one will ever respond to Jesus. Lazarus won't come out of the tomb until Jesus says, Live! So biblical conversion is described as a new birth. It's described as a spiritual resurrection. Thirdly, biblical conversion is described as new sight. New sight. Now look at 2 Corinthians 4, 1 to 6. So go left. You've got Ephesians, Galatians, and then 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 4, 1 to 6. 
In chapter 3 of 2 Corinthians, Paul here is speaking about how he's become a minister of the new covenant, a better covenant. This new covenant is the covenant of the Spirit of God, whereas the old covenant was tied to the letter of the law. And even Moses, though he was deeply intimate with God, he still had to wear a veil over his head when he entered into the presence of God. And that's why in chapter 3, verses 17 through 18, we see this incredible truth. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, as New Covenant believers, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So that's Paul's context for what he's about to say In chapter 4, he's a minister of this new covenant. So this is what he says in chapter 4. Therefore, having this ministry, by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. Oh, how I pray that that would always be true of us. That we would never tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of truth, of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And here, here's the key, verse 3. And even if our gospel is veiled, even if our good news is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. So Paul here is speaking about the fact that there are people who when they hear the gospel there is a veil over their eyes. They don't understand it. They don't see it. They don't get it. They're veiled. And it's veiled to those who are perishing. Now, why are they veiled? Look at verse 4. In their case, the God of this world, that is Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. See that? They're veiled to the gospel. Those who are perishing are veiled to the gospel because the God of this world, Satan, has blinded, not their eyes, but their minds. He's blinded their minds. And what has he specifically blinded them from? What has he blinded them from? Look at what it says. To keep them, verse Verse 4, to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So the Bible would tell us that we are not just disobedient, rebellious sinners, but that we are blind, disobedient, rebellious sinners We cannot see the light of the gospel, the light of the good news of the glory or the beauty of Christ. We are completely blind in our sinful state to see all that is radiant, all that is glorious, all that is true about Jesus. We're blind. So the question is, how does God remove the blindness? How does God remove this veil that Satan has placed upon the minds of unbelievers? Well, look at verse 5. 
For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. So, so Paul says, this is, this is part of it. I proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord. But here's the key. Verse 6. How does the blindness get removed? How does the veil be lifted up? Verse 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness. What does that remind you of? Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was, was without form and void, and the darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. So complete darkness at the beginning of creation, and God simply speaks, and light breaks in to the darkness. Paul is using that picture to describe what God does in the human heart. Okay? Look. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, he has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's almost the exact same phrase that he uses in verse 4. To keep them from seeing the light of the gospel or the knowledge of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So, the sinner, the unbeliever, their minds are blinded by Satan to keep them from seeing the light of the glory, the, the light of the beauty of the face of Jesus Christ. And what's God's solution to that? I'm going to shine light into your hearts and remove that veil so that you can then see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's the solution to the blindness. This is biblical conversion. The blind see. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. Was blind, but now I see. See, this is why... You could sit here week in and week out and hear all about Jesus and never be moved. Because you're blind. You're blind to all that is glorious about Jesus Christ. You're blind to his majesty, his power, his sovereignty, his supremacy over all things. You're brought blind to his humility, his grace, his compassion, his mercy, his love. You don't see him as beautiful because you're blind to him. And the only way you're ever going to see him is for God to shine into your heart to give light to the knowledge of the glory of Christ. There are many people who will say things like, you must believe in order to see. No, you must see before you can believe. You must see Christ before you could ever embrace Christ. You need a new set of eyes. And when God shines into your heart the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, Jesus, who you once were indifferent to, even despised, now becomes of infinite worth to you, where you see him as the most precious, most satisfying, most glorious reality. That's biblical conversion. 
So biblical conversion is described as new birth, as a resurrection life. It's also described as new sight. And finally, I just want to think about some implications of biblical conversion. The first is this. Biblical conversion is never merely a human decision. It's not less than that, but it's definitely more than that. It does require human decision. Jesus taught that we must act, that we must repent and believe. But he also taught that we can only act if God's actions are behind our own. The one who converts is ultimately God himself. Yet I must respond in repentance and faith. You see, if I were to ask you which statement is true, one, I repented and believed upon Jesus. Secondly, God granted me repentance and faith. Which one is true? The answer is both are true. I think the best way to describe this or to to illustrate this, it's not a perfect illustration, but I ride my bike a lot. I'll do like 40, 50K rides and, you know, be going about 28, 30 kilometers on average an hour. And this summer I decided to go riding with my brother who is a far superior rider to me. He races. And so we're riding and I'm drafting behind him and we're going about 39 kilometers on flat ground. It was amazing. And there were times where I would pull up in front of him and he'd then draft behind me. And this, there's a specific moment where we're going up this hill and I'm in the front and I'm slowing down because <laughs> it's a hill. And uh, my brother, because he's just such a better rider than me, he comes up along my left side and he puts his, his right hand on my lower back and he begins to pedal a lot harder. And all of a sudden I start to pick up speed <laughs> going up a hill. And I'm, I'm pedaling, but... but his strength, his power, and his hand simply being on the back, on my back, enabled me to go faster. It empowered me. Now, he was trying to help me, but you know, as a brother, you, he just like made you feel like not a man, right? Like, like, like he's helping me get up this hill, and I just wanted to, I wanted to knock him out. But, um, but you know what? That's often how we first respond when we hear this truth. I don't want God's help. I don't need God's empowerment. I can come to faith without his help. You know, the Apostle Paul said, when he's speaking about the other apostles, I worked harder than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God that is with me. I repented and believed. I really did. I was pedaling my bike. Yet not I, but the grace of God that is in me. See, Philippians 1.29 tells us that repentance is actually a gift from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, granted, that word is actually can be translated gifted. You've been gifted. It's been gifted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. God has granted. He's gifted you Belief and suffering. Acts eleven eighteen. Paul, or not Paul, Peter, in Acts 10, he brings the gospel to a Gentile, Cornelius. 
And he then comes back to Jerusalem and reports on what has happened. And when when those in Jerusalem hear, this is what they say. When they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. So here's a question for you. Is it wrong for us to sing songs like, I have decided to follow Jesus? Because we sing it. There are some who would actually say, you should not sing that song. And I heartily disagree with them. I decided to follow Jesus. If you lose that statement, if you lose that truth, you will lose a significant part of what the Bible teaches. I decided to follow Jesus. I repented and believed upon Jesus Christ. But I have also discovered that my deciding to follow Jesus Christ was not the decisive factor for why I love and follow Jesus. It was because God saw me. He had mercy on me. He saw my blindness, my hardness of heart. He saw my dead corpse. And for some reason unknown to me, he said, live. He said, see, Peter. And I lived. And I saw Christ. So biblical conversion is never merely a human decision. Secondly, in light of what biblical conversion is, we can have hope that God can actually save and transform people. That people, including ourselves, can be changed. That we can actually be made new. I know of someone who I love dearly who absolutely hated God and he loved his sin, wanted nothing to do with God. And the only thing that has ever given me any real hope, even though there has been times where I have not had hope, the only thing that's given me hope was that God was merciful and that God was powerful to save. And that's exactly what happened. He was not searching for God. He was not pursuing God. And yet God intervened in his life to the point where he woke up one morning and he called me and said to me, I woke up this morning singing worship songs to Jesus. I don't know why, but I think I know Jesus. See, God can save that person you don't think can be saved. That family member who you have prayed for for 25, 30, 40 years. That co-worker who you love dearly. That neighbor of yours. That best friend of yours. That person who you think is beyond the reach of God's grace. He's not. She's not. God can truly save that individual. I mean, why do we pray? Is it not that we believe that God can actually intervene and disrupt a person's life? I mean, why do we pray, God, open their eyes, cause them to see, draw them to yourself, save them from their sins? If he can't actually do that, why do we pray those things? But it's because he can do those things. He can actually open their eyes. He can cause them to see. He can draw them to himself. And there's this song that came out recently, I forget what it's called, but there's a specific line in the song called, it says in the song, we're all messed up, but that's okay. 
and people loved the song and I was reading the comments on the YouTube video and and all these people were embracing that one line. That is so true. We are all messed up, but that's okay. Now, if you're like me, yeah, there's always a question mark that comes up when I see a sentence that just doesn't make sense to me. I agree we're all messed up and broken and sinful creature. But why is that okay? It's not okay. It's not okay. But in that statement, I think it captures our society well in that people know they're messed up, but they don't know where to turn to to change. See, the glory of Christianity is that Christianity says people can actually be changed. They can be transformed. Even all of us who are believers in Christ, we know we have experienced change. We are not changed perfectly yet. But as, as uh, John Newton said, I am not what I ought to be. I'm not what I want to be. I'm not what I hope to be. But I'm not what I used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. The grace of God can change people. I think of my father who grew up in a broken home with an alcoholic father who drunk himself to death. And my dad was a hippie going down a very destructive path. He was going to become like his father. And at the age of 17, God intervened. And who would think that a hippie, the first time ever walking into a church in the 1970s, you got to imagine this, Everyone's wearing suit and ties. This man comes in with hair down to here with an I am Canadian t-shirt and holy jeans. And he walks right to the front row and sits down and that became his home church and that later became the church that he pastored. God can change people. Or I think of my other brother, my dear friend in the Lord who is pastoring in the Scarborough who actually took another man's life, murdered him, and while he was in prison, he encountered Christ. And from there, he became a pastor where he loves and cares for people. God can change the sinful human heart. Number three, I'm going too long, I apologize. Third implication, it means a successful ministry, a successful church, isn't based upon the number of people who are converted but on whether or not we're faithful to what God has called us to do. The results are in God's hands. We must be faithful to what God has commanded us to do. We toss the seed, but it's God who causes the seed to grow. Fourth implication. We will be committed to the God-ordained means by which people are converted. What do I mean by that? For some strange reason, God has ordained that it's through the proclamation of his gospel that people will experience the miraculous new birth. God has ordained that salvation, conversion, happens in a human life through spirit-empowered proclamation. Romans 10, 17, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. See, God doesn't just ordain the ends, but also the means. God doesn't need any of us to save in order to save anyone. 
But for some reason, he invites us into his mission in seeing people transformed by the gospel of Jesus. I think of the story of Cornelius in Acts 10. He gets a vision, and he gets a vision to go send for Peter. And Peter comes to him and preaches the gospel to him. Now that's the long way of doing it. Why didn't God just give him the vision and then speak to him and convert him there? I don't know. But he calls Cornelius to go and call Peter to him so that he can then present the good news of Christ to him. God has ordained that it's through us proclaiming his message that people will experience this great salvation. And this means that we will never have gimmicks here. So many churches try to reach and win people to Jesus by being relevant, by compromising, by capitulating to the culture, or they even manipulate. We don't do that here. We will pray, we will sing, we will read God's word, we will proclaim the gospel, we will fellowship and love one another, we will serve one another, and we will tell people about Jesus, and we will leave the results to God. A church that honors Christ is a church committed to the biblical understanding of conversion. And friend, if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, I plead with you, repent and believe in Jesus Christ. Cry out to God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I pray that all of us in this room will be able to say, I once was blind, but now I see. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. And God, we simply ask that you would help us to see. That you would cause the dead to rise in the midst of us. That you would cause those to be born again. And that there would be people here who would truly repent of their sins and trust in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.